0: Hello, I'm Dr. Lisa Belisle, and you are listening to or watching Radio Maine. Today, I have with me artist Steve Rogers. Thanks for coming in today.
1: Oh, you're welcome. Enjoyed it.
0: So, I'm looking at this piece behind me, and I love it. First of all, because it, it's, I think this is your sea bags painting, yes. um, as evidenced by the sea bags Maine sign in the background here. One of the reasons I love it is, as you and I were talking about, I love the ocean. I love Maine, and even though you um, didn't grow up in Maine or on the ocean, you also share a love of the ocean.
1: I absolutely do. Where I grew up was I was, grew up on a farm, and we were in lovely rolling hills in Chester County, and there was no ocean anywhere around me. And my parents would take us to Ocean City, New Jersey, for vacations. There weren't a lot of them, but it was just a thrill to see the water, the bay, and the marshes, and the ocean. And so that that kind of hooked me, and I've loved it ever since.
0: Did your parents have a connection to the water? Why was it that they wanted to go to Ocean City with you?
1: Uh, because everybody in eastern Pennsylvania goes to Ocean City, basically. It's uh then you get into Lancaster County, which is in the middle. and They all go down to Delmarva, to uh, Rehoboth, and Ocean City, uh, Maryland. It's just—it's so, just, it's just a, pattern. It's a pattern. We all spend, you know, a um, couple hours on the Schuylkill Expressway. You know, and that was years ago, of course.
0: But I think you're describing something that is universal. This uh, this kind of migration towards water mm-hmm. that many people in many places experience. I, I suspect that's why a lot of people uh, come to Maine mm-hmm. because of the water.
1: I think it's subliminal. You know, it's just uh, in your uh, in your genes, and um, it's certainly in mine. I, I love it
0: it's kind of like the, the fish that swim upriver. There's something in them that causes them to keep going back to the source. and that's, Yeah, they
1: don't know why they're doing it. They just, yeah.
0: And I guess we're just like fish?
1: Probably more than we think.
0: Probably more than we think, yes. So looking at this piece right here, um, tell me what it was about this particular boat that really caught your eye and caused you to want to focus on it for a piece.
1: I think it was less the boat was less the subject concerned than just the whole environment of the water and and the the pier behind it and the shapes of the of of the images reflected in the water. Uh, this is not the loveliest boat there, but um, I had painted another one that was just classic old style thirty-two foot working lobster boat. And uh, this was my next choice. It was, you know, it had just enough interest. It didn't have the, the green trim on it, but the green trim's pretty common, and, and I, I use it a lot. Why is that? I see it a lot.
0: But is there something about green trim, or is it I just I don't know. You
1: know, in the Chesapeake, um, there's just some colors you don't use. You'll never see blue on a boat. Maybe dark blue, but uh, decks are often light green. Trim is light green or black. Uh, there's just some colors that uh, the watermen and the builders like to use.
0: I'll have to be paying attention to that during the next boating season and mm-hmm. and kind of see see what you're talking about. I I agree with you that this piece, the reflection, is particularly important, especially in the foreground of the painting, and. And I know that structure for you is important.
1: Yeah. I'm I'm one of the well-known Freudian categories, I think. Um so I like details and I spend time on them and, and I go through a, a quite a routine with my square and my level to make sure that the reflected uh item is is directly below the thing it's it's, you know, reflecting. And um so there's a little bit of technique to it as much as art and the other interesting thing about reflections is the reflection sees things you don't you know particularly if you look at a dock uh and the reflection of it you'll see the underside of the dock and the reflection you will not see that from where you're standing it's just you have a different you know point of view
0: I've always found it interesting when I'm down by the water, is it, it the idea that it's this continuation of sea and sky, mm-hmm. broken only on certain days when it's very calm by the horizon line? Mm-hmm. It just it gives you this, this sense of more of this infinite space.
1: A lot of times, uh, well, I mean, it, it's uh, just something that artists learn that the, the furthest of the horizon that you can see always reflects what's immediately above it. And then as it comes towards you, then it progressively reflects the things higher and higher up. So when something is right in front of you, when you look at it, sometimes you can even see through the reflection to the bottom below. And then when when we as artists learn to paint that, you know, uh, that's when it really starts to be realistic.
0: I would think that would be an interesting challenge because it's so it is layered.
1: Challenge. It's a challenge, absolutely. Yeah, it, it took me a long time to, to be good at it. And, uh, and then the other thing you notice is that as, as when you're looking at reflect, water and reflections on it, the closer it gets to you, the darker it gets. Because um, the light is reflecting off it at a different angle and it's not all going into your eyes. So uh when you look at something directly in front of you and you look straight down you often see the bottom.
0: So with that many layers and angles um and things to take into consideration I would think that that there's a need for doing this over and over and over again before you get to a place where you start to feel that maybe it does actually represent what you would like it to.
1: Mm, I I've I've been um A full-time professional artist for almost 30 years, Uh, I have painted all my life. Not always well. (laughs) It's a process, and you know I'm I'm finally at the point where I'm comfortable with what I'm doing, and and a lot of things are just intuitive now. You know I don't have to, you know, think really hard about them. I just see a scene, I like it. it appeals to me, and and I know what I how to how to paint it. And I change things, you know. Um, often, you know, the boat's not in front of the place where it really was, and um, there's probably a foreground that wasn't there before. Uh, the sky's different, you know. These are all things you just put together. Just it appeals to me.
0: For many years, you taught um, a very different sort of skill, also artistic, but with more of a kind of a craft element to it.
1: Uh, well, the, um, I was trying to think how many years I taught up there it's, uh, at, at the Wooden Boat School in Brooklyn, Maine. Um, they asked me about 20 years ago, there had been an article in Wooden Boat Magazine about my work, and, uh, and uh, Rich Helsinger called me up and said, well, would you think about coming up and teaching? And I thought, now there's a way to get to Maine and be paid for it. And uh, it's room and board. And uh, it's just a good deal. So uh, any excuse as far as I'm concerned. But I had no idea how much work it was. The very first year that I taught the very first Monday that I taught, at five o'clock when the class was over, I thought my brains had been sucked out of my head. It was, it, it was exhausting. Uh, my wife came by the shop to pick me up, and I couldn't have driven the car. I really was absolutely, you know, I have I, at that moment in time, I just got a whole new appreciation for teachers. I just didn't realize. And, you know, I'd made all the classic mistakes. I gave the students choices, you know. And I didn't prepare materials ahead of time. I mean, you know, there's a bunch of easy mistakes to make. And uh, fortunately, you know, I figured some of that stuff out and, and the class got easier and easier. Uh, but I basically taught a, uh, a, a simple boat that had a few wrinkles that made it, there was a little trick to to building it. And uh, it was a, a warden's skiff, which doesn't sound like much, but it's an 18 foot sailboat from the Outer Banks of North Carolina. And I had a great plan done by Mike Alford of the Beaufort Maritime Museum. And it was um, just a really well done plan. All the details were there and it was easy for the students to see it and, and then figuring out how to translate the plan into the model was something else. Uh, one year, a friend of mine, um, Walt Ansell from uh, Mystic Seaport, uh, he also comes up and teaches every year. And uh, we both taught the same boat. I taught it as a model, and he taught it as a full-size boat. And he was in the next studio. And uh, the students were just going back and forth the whole time, watching the process on both sides, because we were ahead of them time-wise. We were making more progress. But, you know, in the other studio, it was the real thing. And so uh, his class was two weeks. You know, mine is one week. So uh, we didn't get to see him finish it. But uh, we had a big ceremony at the end of the week where we turned it over, you know, because it was built. Up, upside down, and the bottom was applied, and then we turned it over, and then they started putting in the in interior structures. But uh, and the deal there was, I think, if I remember correctly, um, the students uh, drew lots to see who would would be able to buy the boat, and you had to pay the cost of materials, you know which was probably thousand dollars because you know it, it was all. Beautiful white cedar. I don't know where they found it, but uh, they have guys up there. They know where it is, and uh, it's all the best materials.
0: What is it about wooden boats that keeps people so interested in learning how to build them?
1: Um, I'm not sure I can put my finger on it. I just think maybe it's a connection with the past. You know, uh, for me, it's always been... uh, You know to appreciate the the lives of the watermen the people that work on the water you know and what it was like and you know it really wasn't that long ago you know you're only talking a generation maybe two generations you know so you're talking about your grandfather and um the way that it changes you know um You know, 40 years ago, a 32-foot lobster boat was fine. You know, you could just go out and work around your island or offshore. And now, you know, the lobsters, um, the temperature is very important to the lobsters, and the Gulf of Maine is warming up. So they're not coming in in the numbers that they used to. So what do you do? Well, you have to go further out. Well, that's more time consuming. You know, it's two and a half hours to get out to your traps. And then you have to be out, you're hauling eight hundred traps. And that takes a while. So now they're with bigger boats. Well, bigger boats are more money, you know, and more equipment and now it's overnight. It it's just everything has gotten more complicated.
0: So maybe it's so it's the connection to the past, but could it also be the simplicity?
1: I think so, I think so, and and I just love the craftsmanship involved in building a lobster boat. It's just, uh, I, I I can't say I've honestly watched it being done, but I know how it's done, and I've been in a lot of shops where it was going on. I didn't get to stay to see the whole process, but um, you know, it's it's a it's, it's before computers and slide rules and. Uh, calculators, it's, it's all done by ratios and uh, eyesight. It's just incredible.
0: It kind of reminds me of the way that sailors used to navigate back before GPS and all the technology when they mm. would use the stars and yeah. a really complicated um, set of calculations to know how to get from point A to point B, but it worked.
1: It did work, and and uh, I think they used to have a, a little container of water, and then I don't know what it was, but something iron, and it always aligned with the North Star or the North. And uh, yeah, and with that they could they could navigate. I think I read an article, um, it might have been in the Post, and uh, so Italians have to be. Accept this, but the Vikings probably got here first, and uh, they—they have—they've—they've they've discovered that, and they've timed so a Viking settlement up in Labrador to uh, one thousand twenty-one BC or AD or CE. Now, I guess.
0: I'm interested in your your kind of you're such a ocean-oriented individual, but you also spend some time in the Air Force.
1: Yeah, well, that, you know, that was, um, when I was in college, we were, it was college, we were just oblivious to the fact that, um, when we graduated, we would be eligible for the draft. And, you know, you didn't know what that was going to bring, uh, it was just before numbers and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, the draft board in my county did not consider my degree is in anthropology. I loved it. Um, but it's not considered a science. It was not then considered a science. And so, uh, it dawned on me that when I graduated, you know, I was going to be, uh, you know, liable to be drafted. So, it just seemed to make sense. To enlist and at least have some control over what was going to happen. So I was very fortunate. I got accepted at uh, Air Force OTS and went to Texas like everybody else, and did basic training, and then um, spent the next four years uh, in aircraft maintenance work, which is very technical. and um, And you know, when I when I finally got out. Um, I knew what I was doing. <laughs> it seems to be the way it works. You know, it takes you the 3 4 years to um learn how to do the job you, you're in and and then you leave. But it was it was fascinating and I learned a lot. And most of it from some great senior NCOs that worked for me. Um I don't know if if enough uh Recognition is given to the senior NCOs in the services. They are amazing people. Uh, One of them told me one time, he said, you know, we get the officers we deserve. You know, they come into the service, they get their brown bar, they're a lieutenant, and we lie to them. And we tell them wrong things. And... We make them look bad, but, you know, then they make first lieutenant, and they figured some things out. And then they make captain, and they know even more stuff. And then they can really mess with us. So he said, "That's that's why we have to change the way we do things.
0: I know you also have an interest in leadership. So what you're talking to me about right now kind of reminds me of that fact. Tell me about why why is leadership to you important?
1: Well, uh, I mean, I just think it's fair to, to do your fair share of serving on commissions and stuff like that. Um, you know, it's not like I think artists should give back, but I do, but um, I think anybody sh- should take the opportunity to serve in the city government um, on a commission, on an ad hoc committee. Um, I think it would help people appreciate how hard governance is. I just don't think they realize. I mean, I have several friends that, you know, one the mayors and councilmen and stuff, and they're always wrestling with competing interests. And uh, somebody's always going to be upset, you know, or they're dealing really hard things like the sewer plant has a problem. It has to be fixed. And uh, I just think if if more people took their turn at governance, uh, they would have a little more tolerance for when government doesn't work that well. Um, I did, I think, three, two terms on a local arts organization, and and I enjoyed that because it was one I was a member of, and and I was very glad that they were there. They did a lot of nice things for me, so I didn't mind serving on the board for a while. So, yeah, I think uh, participating. I don't think leadership is hard. It's just you should do it so you understand it.
0: I think the term VUCA... UCA comes from the military. I think it's volatil- uh, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. And, and that's essentially what I think a lot of people within the military field acknowledge that the world is. And I think we all are starting to understand that that's actually what the, the greater world is at this point. Have you found that be so over the years? Have you seen that the world has perhaps become a place that is more uh, uncertain?
1: Um, I Probably I'm an optimist. And, you know, I've been over in Europe a number of times and uh, I've always enjoyed it. Um, I've been to France a couple of times, Italy a couple of times, Portugal uh, three times. I love Portugal. And um, I just find people are pretty much the same, and they want about the same things. I, I do love the food. <laughs> that's that's a big benefit. Um, no, I'm optimistic, and I think, you know, I think we're going to be fine.
0: Well, I want to be clear. I, I, like you, I am a an optimist. I would consider myself to be by choice. mm mm-hmm. um, And I think sometimes it's important to kind of acknowledge that things are complex and also be willing to find the strengths in a situation. Mm -hmm. But it sounds like what you're saying is you're finding more similarities uh, when you go to different places than you are differences.
1: I think, yeah, the differences aren't near as significant as the similarities. And and some of the, the different ways people approach things are interesting to see. And, um, you know, uh, you might get phone calls on this, but this uh, idea of American exceptionalism, I don't, I just don't see it. And it's a shame if it interferes with um, looking at the way other countries and societies deal with their problems. You know, we could learn a lot. Uh, It's almost like uh, ignoring the concept of best practices you know, when you look around the country and you have an issue, you it, you can you can look into other organizations just like you, if it's a state or a town or whatever, and find a really good solution to your problem. And um, we shouldn't have to reinvent the wheel time after time after time.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. And I think looking at the events of the past, we're, we're heading into two years now. Um, related to COVID, it's become really clear that even from a public health standpoint, we need to get a little bit better about understanding what is working well in some places that could mm. be replicated in, in others. Do you, th- do you think, do you have thoughts on that?
1: Well, I, I know I've, every time I see a story on TV and, and they're showing graphs, you know, Maine looks like they have really done a good job with this. And I don't know if it's people more disciplined and, and accept the fact that they have to deal with with something that's real and something that's dangerous, and people... I've lost two friends to it. So uh, I don't question how serious it is. I don't think it's some conspiracy, you know, made up by other people somewhere. I just, you know, it is a pandemic. It does kill people, and you have to respond to it with... with uh, with science and do best practices, and you know the best practices aren't that hard to figure out. They there were two cities uh, during the 1918 uh, pandemic: Philadelphia and St. Louis. And Philadelphia didn't do very much, and they had hellacious uh, fatalities from it. But St. Louis made people wear masks and social distance, because that's all they could do. They didn't really have any other way to deal with it. And and they suffered much less. So that's a clue. <laughs> and so um, I think that you just have to accept that some things you're not going to like, but you have to do them anyway.
0: Well, given that you have a, an undergraduate degree in anthropology mm-hmm. and you are doing things that are very much connected to the past, It sounds like to you, the historical perspective is really very important to consider.
1: Oh yeah, I would. I I enjoy going places that are that haven't changed a lot, you know, because you get this. And and I'm almost. um, I shouldn't be shocked by how fast things are changing, (laughs) but um, yeah, I've lived long enough to to uh, have seen places. Like an example, there's a a, a little a town, it's a small town. I mean, it's it's uh, sized, and it's it's on the on the coast of of Virginia, on the on the Delmarva Peninsula, and it's it's watermen and you know crabbers and clambers and stuff like that. And um, I used to go down there, and and the waterfront would be. The original waterfront i mean a lot of rotted pilings old buildings um even older boats you know um and well then the state came in and you know pulled all that stuff out cleaned it all up put in all new docks and new, and new bulkhead and and all that stuff is gone you know and um uh, There's no boats in the grass anymore. Uh, It's sort of disappointing.
0: Yeah, I can see that, that, you know, when we move forward with, on the one hand, might be progress. Mm -hmm. It does take away... Some of the history that we've experienced and, and evidence that people came before us
1: mm-hmm. here. Um, so there was a bridge in South Bristol goes from the mainland to to Rotherford Island, and it used to be a swing bridge. And no, it's not there. It's gone. They, it's a whole new bridge. You know, looks modern. Looks like the thing over. Oh. Uh, 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 not to, the one over the the Hudson River in New York. And anyway, it's it just doesn't to me doesn't have the the artistic and interesting look of the other one. And there was a family that ran it, you know, and I don't know where they are now. Who does that?
0: It's a little bit like the lighthouses.
1: Yeah, yeah it is. We have two in in Lewis. Um uh, the East End Light and and the um, the Harbor Refuge Light and um, the the East End Light is, is not used now. Um, but there's a fortunately for us there's a nonprofit that's taken over management and maintenance of it and they have tours. It's 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 interesting. It's it's great. It's a great subject to paint. And then the further one out, uh, the Harbor Refuge Light, is uh, I think that still works, but needs work. It's it's pretty well beat up because it's it's just out there on a on a jetty, and uh, you know it's completely exposed all the way around, like the lighthouses here.
0: You've been a member of the Portland Art Gallery, I believe, since two thousand
1: eighteen. Mm-hmm. I think that's right.
0: Has it been important for you to experience that particular community of artists?
1: Well, I've always enjoyed... uh, I've I've, I've been part of two openings, and uh, I love the work of the other artists. I enjoy being around artists, period. Uh, I'm in a small group at home. Um, I enjoy... (laughs) Seeing the other work that they bring in, uh, I mean, I don't any anytime I'm here, I, I come to the gallery and walk around and look at at the other artists' work. Um, and And it's, it's there's some really fine artists in the gallery. I'm really proud to be there.
0: and it's a broad range of different styles and different foci. I mean, there are quite a few people who, are, who do have a focus on the ocean mm-hmm. um, and are more representational, but then we also have people who are very abstract. We have sculptors. And I wonder sometimes, um, as a painter, when you look at other people who, who have their own art that's so different than yours, mm-hmm. does it ever make you wonder, how do, how do we as artists kind of get pulled in one direction or the other?
1: Um, You know, I think it's it's just simply a matter of what what you want to paint and what you enjoy doing. And uh, I'm I'm in a group of professional artists at home, and I'm in the minority. Uh, There's there's 13 of us, and two of us are representational painters. Everybody else is abstract or um, various derivatives of that. And, um, you know, the whole goal is we critique each other's work. And that can be painful. (laughs) It's, um, but it's usually worthwhile. Um, I have learned that when I'll put a piece up and uh, one person will say, oh, that doesn't read right, you know, to me... You know, uh, uh, I just cringe. I really do. You know, I, I try not to show it, but uh, I'm not perfect. And, uh, you know, I, I just... <laughs> but that being said, when I go home and I take some of their suggestions, the painting ends up being successful and sells. So um, I've just reached the conclusion. I'm going to listen. It's a good thing, and they are, and you know, simply because uh, these other artists paint abstract and uh, the various forms of work. That doesn't mean they're not artists. You know, they're and they understand all of the rules that I should be following, and uh, not like rules, but I mean just the things I should be doing, and and I've gotten. Great advice.
0: I've been speaking with artist Steve Rogers. I encourage you to go to the Portland Art Gallery to experience his work in person. Also, potentially come to one of our openings at which Steve may be there, so it'd be fun for you to meet him. He's obviously a very interesting person, as you can tell from our conversation. Also, go to the website where you can see more of his work. Steve, it's really been a great conversation. Thank you for coming in today.
1: I've enjoyed it.